Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance physical and mental well-being and encourage community. And when I say community, I say it because I believe that human beings are friendly, tribal animals that like to hang out together, cooperate together, and collaborate together. And they can do so best when they associate in relatively small groups where they know each other by name or at least by face. However, it's important to know that there's also a very small percentage, less than 5%, but it's a small, powerful percentage of humans who are predators. They're not cooperative collaborators. They're motivated by power, greed, and avarice. And we must be vigilant about those folks in order to preserve, in the words of Thomas Jefferson, our liberty, that we must be eternally vigilant to take care of our liberty. Our guest today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is Dr. Christian Greer. Dr. Christian is a scholar of religious studies specializing in the global history of psychedelic spirituality. While a postdoctoral researcher at Harvard Divinity School, he led a series of research seminars that culminated in the creation of the Harvard Psychedelic Walking Tour, a free audio guide detailing how the Harvard community has shaped the modern history of psychedelic culture. We're going to want to hear about that. His forthcoming book, Angel-Headed Hipsters, Psychedelic Militancy in 1980s North America. That's Oxford University Press, by the way. And he explores the expansion of psychedelic culture in the late Cold War era. He's currently a lecturer at Stanford University. Welcome, Christian, to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Thanks so much for the introduction, Richard. Christian, a lot of your work, as I understand it, is informing us that understanding the history of psychedelic culture is extremely important. Take us on a journey of both why you believe this and from whence it comes. Sure. Uh, and thanks again for having me on. I'm a big fan of the show. And of course, your new book, Psychedelic Wisdom, is I'm eagerly anticipating its publication. It's such an important text. Thank you. Well, uh, I'm a historian of religion. And in a nutshell, it just so happened that I remember, you know, being an undergraduate student at Boston University and having a deep thirst, a deep hunger to understand religion and spirituality as it was lived around me. However, all the courses I took were about religious practices and institutionalized religion that didn't seem to be as prominent, at least among my social circle, as a wide variety of other spiritual practices. And so I knew a number of people who were, who define themselves as earth-based that have an earth-based spirituality, or I knew pagans. And I knew, in fact, most of the people I knew who were talking about spirituality and religion were not associated with any institutionalized religious group. They were the spiritual but not religious. And one of the main conversation partner, one of the main conversation topics amongst the spiritual not religious was psychedelics. So there I was as an undergrad attempting to find some information about the way in which religion was lived around me, yet not finding much. 
And so I went on to do masters, uh, two master's degrees in the study of religion and esotericism until finally I got to my PhD and I said, listen, I really need to set my mind and attention on telling the history of what is an extremely influential current in modern American religion, and that's psychedelics. However, what I found was that the same narrative was being told and retold about the history of psychedelics in America. This is the master narrative that runs from Aldous Huxley, right through Timothy Leary, all the way into Ken Kesey, the Merry Pranksters. And then that master narrative more or less ends in 1969 with Altamont, tragedy there, and the Manson murders. So in some respects, my dissertation became a matter of mapping this master narrative and then attempting to move beyond the master narrative, tell a new story of the way in which psychedelics became a social force in America. And how did I do that? I didn't focus on individuals. I didn't focus on the great men of psychedelic culture. I focused on groups. I focused particularly on the movement of psychedelicist churches. And these churches, of course, did not always look like churches. I mean, some did. Timothy Leary's religious fellowship, the League of Spiritual Discovery, looked like a church and conducted itself as a church, even including uh, sacramental performances led by Alan Watt, the Anglican um, priest. But then again, you had a whole spectrum of psychedelicist fellowships that took on a variety of institutional forms. You know, from dropout communes, that was the largest. There were upwards of thousands of these dropout communes that were structured around a communal use of lysergic acid dithalamide, LSD, or psilocybin. But dropout communes, uh, communes were not the only type of psychedelic fellowship at the time. You had psychedelic retreat centers. You had musicians, bands that would cultivate a psychedelic following. Here, of course, the Grateful Dead is a perfect example of a psychedelicist group that cultivates a religious understanding of the world or spiritual understanding of the world that it spreads and shares through its music. And in fact, if you want to look at an extremely strong and vibrant community where psychedelic exploration has continued unabated since the 1960s, Grateful Dead fandom is a perfect example of an, a, a psychedelic community that's alive, well, and thriving. And it has thrived throughout the war on drugs. Anyways, there were biker gangs. One there second. Were sex comes. Let, yeah. let me interrupt you kindly. If if the Grateful Dead community, which we know is a significant size community, both in terms of who shows up at their events, who listens to their records, they associate together, and there are even what are called Grateful Dead followers, and we know that. To make the connection for us between the Grateful Dead's music and community and spirituality and religion. Sure. Well, the Grateful Dead, formerly known as the Warlocks, were the house band for Ken Kesey's acid tests, which he conducted from 1965. These acid tests were in many ways the first impression the American public had of psychedelic culture, psychedelic experience. So you had thousands of people initiated into the psychedelic worldview through these acids. And it just so happened that the extraordinary experiences that these people were having as a result of their participation in these acid tests were shaped and colored by the atmospheres in which they underwent these experiences. And these atmospheres were dominated by the Grateful Dead playing their music. So in one sense, the cryptic lyrics of the Grateful Dead acted as a sort of storyline, acted as a well of insights and teachings and shared ideas for this growing community of psychedelic seekers. And it just so happened that that community of psychedelic seekers got so large that it began to develop its own subcultures within it. One of those subcultures, of course, was the production of psychedelic substances themselves. 
Here I'm thinking of um, Bayer, the most famous acid chemist in American history, who was the sound engineer for the Grateful Dead. So this is all to say that within this large psychedelic culture, you had a community response to the dangers involved in, psych in experimenting with psychedelics without any guardrails. And so you had a number of different lessons and teachings, and in fact, wisdom developed within the Grateful Dead fandom that shapes the psychedelic experience, both for the novices, the people who are coming in without any experience, and the deadheads, the people who have been following the Grateful Dead for many, many decades. Um, I believe within this container, so to speak, you can have a more or less successful psychedelic trip as a result of the traditions and customs passed down across the dead community for a number of decades. And just in a more institutionalized sense, dead concerts often have tents where you can go to and recede receive aid if your psychedelic experience is becoming unwieldy or uncomfortable. So that, that's an institutional form as well. Now, what happens as the date Grateful Dead have aged and they're less or not at all on tour? What happens with their community and what happens with the spirit of the psychedelic renaissance that they were part of? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic question. And, and what's really cool is that I'm actually more interested in Grateful Dead fandom than I am in the Grateful Dead as a band. I'm much more interested in that community because, for example, I'm here at Stanford, a very tech-centric place. There is a story of the internet that goes like this. The first communications sent through the early DARPA net were not these high flute and important messages, but in fact, it was tape sharing, recordings of Grateful Dead concerts being shared between people at Stanford. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful idea that the internet was born out of a Grateful Dead fan community. But the Grateful Dead, of course, see psychedelic exploration as a key component of what it means to belong to this community. And so even when the Dead is not touring, fans would get together and go and view other bands, participate in other so-called jam band fandom, and there develop their ideas, develop their teachings, and develop the wisdom that was transferred through throughout generations of people who are interested in psychedelic experimentation, but don't want to do it alone, don't want to do it in their apartment, alienated and cut off from the world. They want to do it in a community of like-minded people that are also very well versed in psychedelics, how they work, the best practices and the things to avoid. I should also say the Grateful Dead are still touring. In fact, they replace members of the group. And so there will, I think, I hope always be a Grateful Dead, though perhaps not the same members as the ones that founded the group. What can you tell us about the relationship between the name, the Grateful Dead, and spirituality. Richard, this is a conversation that I've had with a number of students over the years. And I don't think I've ever reached an ex a totally satisfying answer. But before I jump in, do you have any ideas about what could, what could the name of this group mean? Any speculations? Because I don't think there's a right answer. Yes, I do. I have, okay. I have a speculation but I've never spoken to any of the dead about it, although one of them is my neighbor uh, on the coast in, in Northern California. Um, in, in my first significant psychedelic experience with, um, with LSD, I went through what is referred to in the literature and Leary and Alpert uh, described in their book and the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which I had read before as a student uh, I took LSD, and by the way, that first time when I took it, Christian, I ate 400 morning glory seeds, uh, he he heavenly blue, which Leary and Alpert talked about in their, uh, in their book, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. That was the only way I could get LSD in Michigan at the time. And ah. I went through a classic ego death. 
And fortunately, I had read enough to know that when I felt like I was in fact dying, I wasn't really literally dying, which is scares some people. And, you know, they end up in emergency rooms or they go, you know, they're freaking out because they think they're literally physiologically Mm. dying. But I knew I wasn't. And I went through what is described as ego death. And afterwards, I was grateful. I was more than grateful. I was thrilled that I had done this, that I had gone through being with myself without the encumbrance of my ego and and being able to uh, realize myself as what felt like a light being, an electromagnetic being of made of of little atoms. In fact, I thought I could see the atoms (laughs) in solid structures. I looked at a table and came to the realization that a table isn't really solid. It's, it feels solid to us, but it's really a bunch of atoms and then molecules stuck together with spaces in between, which we know is true. And I had that experiential learning. And so I came away from that, quote, ego death, very grateful for the experience. And I made that jump to that's where they were coming from and calling themselves the <laughs> Grateful Dead. But I've never really verified it. No, that, that's, that's really a fantastic um, suggestion. I really love it. And, and it brings to mind an idea I've had before. Of course, I think you're exactly right. I think it's very effective to translate it this way because it is a little grain of psychedelic wisdom in itself. So only hearing the name can you, lead you on the path. And, and of course, I think that you're exactly right. Surrendering ego, becoming grateful to undergo ego death. But going one step further, I've always thought, what would the perfect psychedelic community look like? It would be a group of people who are grateful that their ego has been destroyed. We are grateful because we're no longer slaves to our ego anymore. We are happy, healthy people who no longer need to be slaves to the conditioned individual uh, worldview. We are uh, together and happily surrendering these authoritarian impulses and living communally. So, yeah, I'm I'm right with you on that, Richard. So one of the great classical American pragmatic philosophers, Josiah Royce, is quoted as saying, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And your work focuses on the past. Talk to us about how the importance of the past in the psychedelic history. Tell us how that's important to the average person today in getting involved in psychedelics and how is that important to the modern psychedelic community? Well, thanks. Again, what a fruitful question. It's, it's really so much fun talking to you about this stuff. These are the conversations I love to have. Why is the past important? Well, whenever I teach, I always emphasize that I'm not here to open up your head and dump stuff in. Okay? Number one, that's impossible. Number two, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do. More importantly, knowledge of the past inoculates you against the bullshit of the present. Having a long view of history gives you a leg up when ideologies would try to dominate your mind, when different authoritarian claims would make a play to grab your consciousness and and really transfix you into a a certain way of thinking. So, for example, looking at the past and the, the history of the psychedelic church movement allows us to realize that, for one, psychedelics are ancient. The use of psychedelic substances goes back all the way to the Neolithic era. And really we can chart the spread of 
psychedelic ceremonies across the world in nearly every single culture on record. So what does that mean for today? For one, it means that psychedelics doesn't have one definition. They're not purely therapeutic. They're not purely spiritual. They're not purely ceremonial. They're all of those things. And by looking at the past, I think we can gain a greater sense of the different modalities in which they can be effective and not insisting that they're only good for this reason or good for this reason. And by that same token, we can also learn from the abuses and the dangers inherent in psychedelic communities. So while the master narrative of psychedelic culture really only focuses on one big bad guy, no, I'm not talking Richard Nixon, <laughs> I'm talking about <laughs> Charles Manson. Charles Manson represents this perversion of the hippie ideas. That's the media narrative, but it's not true. If we go back and look through the history of psychedelic churches in the mid-60s to the mid-70s, we find a lot of bad actors. These are people who are able to use psychedelics as a means of wearing down the ego defenses of their followers and eventually taking control or at least exerting an undue influence on these followers and then commanding them to them commanding them to do really ugly, disgusting things. And I think it does not behoove anybody to sweep this aspect of psychedelic culture under the rug. Because at the end of the day, I am not here to support psychedelics, nor am I here to villainize them. I am here to give them the proper due they deserve as a historian, which means looking at them in an unbiased way. And really, that is only the result of so many of my forebearers, the psychedelic activists, that have worked so hard over the last 70 years to push us out of the war on drugs, which was not simply a militarized campaign to put people in jail, but also an intellectual regime that more or less prohibited scholars from looking at this stuff. I am an advocate for psychedelics, and unabashedly so, Christian. And the reason I'm an advocate, there are several reasons. One of them is that they have been made illegal and suppressed by the United States government. So I'm immediately suspicious of anything that is suppressed and made illegal, because that says to me, there must be some interesting potential there. There must be something going on there that the government feels that it's necessary to suppress it and make it illegal. So I want to know more about whatever it is <laughs> that they're suppressing. And when I study psychedelics, what becomes most obvious to me is that the reason for the suppression is that these medicines have the power to create major cultural change. And governments do not want major cultural change because they could lose their jobs. And more <laughs> important than anything else to the politicians and the leaders is that they keep their jobs. I mean, that's important to all of us who, are, who have to work for a living. You know, do we want to keep our jobs? And their way of keeping their jobs is to keep everything orderly and in control. And so here we have something that could create cultural change. That is of interest to me. As a doctor of clinical psychology, I'm interested because these medicines, these molecules, appear to have the potential for healing. And that is another reason for us to be interested and for me to be an advocate. And then, in addition to that, there is the very distinct possibility that these substances can be used for creativity, for learning more about the human condition and learning more about the world. And I'm going to give you one example of that that's of particular interest to me, Christian. If you cut the back of your hand accidentally 
and make a, a, a cut, you know, maybe three or four inches along, you will be confident, unless you're a hemophiliac or on blood thinner, you will be confident that that cut is going to heal, correct? Because that's, yeah, what, your, that's what your skin does. But if I say to you, Christian, how did you heal that cut on your hand? You won't be able to tell me how you did it, but you did it. You might be able to tell me some chemistry. You might be able to tell me some physics, but you literally don't know how your body took charge and healed that wound. But you did, and you did it. And you know you did it because I didn't heal the back of your hand and your mother and dad didn't and your sisters and brothers and your friends. It's only you who did that. So we are capable of having things happen to this thing that we call a body that I call a transporter that carries our spirit around. We're capable of doing things that we don't know how we did. And I raised the question, might these psychedelic substances facilitate an understanding of how we healed that cut. Could we get some kind of, if not cognitive understanding, then some connection of cognitive and emotional, chemical, physiological understanding, what Heinlein called grokking. Might we sure. learn how to, remember that? We, we, we yeah. learn, maybe, might we learn how to grok how to heal that? Because if these substances have the power to facilitate an understanding of how we fix the cut on our hand and heal it, then the next step, of course, would be going inside and healing the pancreas or the liver or the heart or the kidneys or whatever else. So I'm giving you a long, you know, winded explanation of why I am a, a, an advocate. And I really sure. appreciate the fact that you're not an advocate, that you're a reporter, that you're bringing us information. And I want to switch gears now a bit and oh, I should say, you, though, that uh, I, I don't consider myself so much a, a reporter as a researcher. Researcher. And, you know, yeah, so, someone who's willing to go and look, go and offer unbiased and hopefully novel ways of interpreting the ways in which psychedelics have shaped human culture from the very start. And I think it's by virtue of offering an unbiased perspective on that, that social institutions will be forced to change. And government bodies will be forced to change because they can no longer base their villainization of psychedelics on faulty information, which I believe has proliferated over the course of the war on drugs. And so what I see myself as really ho hopefully moving history forward in the sense that it can return to the knowledge that psychedelics have always been an integral part of human culture, both as a source of healing and religious exaltation. I didn't mean to diminish your research work when I referred to it as reporting. What I meant was that you bring us an unbiased report of what your research indicates. So you report to us what your research found yeah. without loading it in, with a particular agenda. You give yeah. us a neutral reporting of your research, which is very important as well as my advocacy is important. Now, I want to switch a little bit now and I ask you to tell us some stories about the use of psychedelics in early human history. Teach us about some of that that we don't know, because as you've pointed out to the public, we know a bit about Albert Hoffman, about his bicycle ride. We know about Leary, <laughs> you know, and if, if, 
you know, the internal feder- internal federation for internal freedom, you know, and uh, and 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 drop in, turn on, drop in, and drop out. Tune in, to, uh, dr- drop in, and drop out. We know about more about the present. Tell us some fun stories about early <laughs> early use of psychedelics in the human history. Yeah, well, this is really the story I am most excited about. While, of course, my first love is the North American psychedelic movement of the last 75 years, um, I have to say I find myself more and more fascinated by the interdisciplinary collection of scholars needed to excavate the story of drugs in human history. We're going to need more than historians. We're going to need more than archaeologists. We're also going to need data scientists. We're going to need carbon daters. We're going to need technologists. So, yeah, it's a really cool, it's the thin edge of the wedge, if you ask me, because by virtue of recognizing humanity's ancient imbrication with psychedelics, we're really going to have to reappraise what they can do for us today. But to answer your question, there is a school of research led by Gordon Wasson and my old professor, Carl Ruck at Boston University, that suggests that the jump from our early hominid ancestors to Homo sapiens sapiens was affected by prolonged use of particularly Amanita muscaria, the beautiful mushroom with the red cap. They put this thesis forward in Persephone's quest and traced the way in which the birth of the human religious imagination in many ways, according to this thesis, bears clear evidence that it was shaped and molded by this early impulse to get together and experience the extraordinary collectively. So the impulse to ritually share this particular sacred meal might have been the origin of what we know today as religion. Well, that's a very interesting thesis. However, there is much harder evidence if we cast our glance back 3000 BCE to the Indus River Valley, where we find the Soma cult. What has been the Soma cult? This is a belief structure, community belief structure, handed down through time, oral tradition, that we only find written down in 2500 BCE as a series of hymns called the Rig Vedas. The Rig Vedas, one of humanity's oldest religious texts, is a celebration of Soma, Soma being a god, an herb of immortality, and a drink. And so in one of humanity's oldest religious textbooks, we have a psychedelic ceremony, front and center. No one's going to argue that. Now, scholars do argue, oh, what was the particular substance Soma was? Some have argued it's Amanita muscaria, it's Gordon Wasson. Some have argued it's ephedra. More recently, there is a fascinating line of research suggesting that Soma was in fact not one thing, but a combination of things bringing it closer to what is called an ayahuasca analog. That is a ritual admixture. Anyways, whatever it was, it sent this community into religious ecstasies where they were where they were able to reportedly commune with the source of all understanding, the source of all being. What's interesting about the Soma cult of the Indus River Valley is that it moved and perhaps penetrated as far in across the Indus Valley, across what we know today as India, through the Middle East. And here we have a lot of good research on the Avesta, ancient Persian belief system that has its own Soma cult, Auma. So now we have Soma penetrating into the Middle East and making its way possibly all the way to Roman Egypt, where it's celebrated as the rites of Eleusis, the Eleusinian mysteries. And, and there is also pretty interesting archaeological evidence suggesting that as the Soma cult moved through time and space, it met up with other groups indigenous groups that were using their own psychedelics. So the Soma cult might have mutated as it 
intersected with native cults that were already involved in psychedelic ceremonialism, changing it. And, and the idea is that when the Soma cult moved into Egypt, there was a pre-existing cult in Greece dedicated to psychedelic mushrooms. And this would have been early Greek culture, Mycenaean culture. Um, and of course, this is just uh, blown up with the Eleusian mystery, the grand rite of the ancient world. And as you may know, the Eleusian mystery was a yearly performance of a mass psychedelic ritual. Upwards of hundreds of people would go each year. Every Roman was allowed to go. No, based, it was not based on class or distinction or gender. And they were invited into this ceremony that took place incrementally throughout the year, but the big event, they would do a pilgrimage all the way to this temple devoted to Demeter, the goddess of wheat. And over the course of 24 hours, they would be brought into this amphitheater where a huge stage show would happen. And the stage show was punctuated by taking a drink of the kekion, this magical substance. And for hundreds of years, we had a yearly psychedelic ritual occurring right in the middle of the Greek and Roman empire that cycled thousands through the psychedelic mystery. To this day, we don't know what is in the kekion, though Albert Hoffman has suggested it was ergot, ergotized wheat, which would be a LSD, you know, precursor to LSD. Anyways, so in the ancient world, we had a variety of psychedelic experiences happening. The largest religion in the ancient Greco-Roman uh, world, the Eleusian rite, was a psychedelic rite, which is fascinating, but not the only one. And in fact, it was so popular that we had people get in trouble for smuggling the kekion to their home and having psychedelic dinner parties with each other. And of course, there is the, the provocative thesis put forward by Brian Marescu that Christianity itself originated as a break-off psychedelic cult. Christianity itself was a mystery religion, and it was a mystery religion shaped by the collective use of psychedelic substances. Okay, well, we can trace the story all the way up to the present. <laughs> before we trace it to the present, staying somewhere between before the Common Era and the Common Era, Along came this man, Jesus Christ, a, uh, a Jewish rabbi who changed the course of history. And in one of your uh, uh, sessions that you taught at Harvard, I noticed that the title of one of the sessions was Jesus was a mushroom. <laughs> Christian, what, tell, what does that mean, Jesus was a mushroom? Right, please please right. tell all. <laughs> right. <laughs> I wish I could reveal the secrets. No. Um, this is a reference to an important book that was published in the 70s, John Allegro's The Sacred Mushroom. Uh, uh, yeah, The Sacred Mushroom. And John Allegro is a very significant figure in the history of modern religion. He was one of the top religious scientists that was dispatched when the Dead Sea Scrolls were excavated. Uh -huh. So this was someone who was considered a world expert. And he has dozens of ancient languages. I mean, not just you know, Greek and Sanskrit. He has Aramaic, you know, he has all of the languages necessary to really do important work in the field of ancient religion. Well, after he publishes what is a groundbreaking, groundbreaking research in the study of the Dead Sea Scrolls, he begins to turn his attention elsewhere. Particularly, he starts looking at fertility rites and fertility cults of ancient Sumeria. So this is, you know, one of humanity's oldest religious endeavors. Anyways, he, he discovers or believes he has discovered a code underlying Aramaic and Hebrew. Long story short, he looks at the Hebrew scriptures and early Christian scriptures as a cipher that can be decoded. And 
at the center of this code is the use of psychedelic mushrooms in a renegade Jewish sect based on healing and exaltation. And Jesus himself doesn't exist as a person. Rather, Jesus would exist as a symbol of the regenerative power of the psychedelic experience when undertaken collectively. So whenever you see Jesus, you're talking about the shared love and gnosis that is communicated when people gather in the name of Christ. Christian, you talk to us about this man, John Allegro, and, and point out that he knew Aramaic, that he was a major scholar, that he was brought in to help translate the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you also bring to our attention, as has happened to so many over the, over the centuries, that his career was not only ruined, but there's an actual article called Academic Suicide that's about him. What, hap- what happened to him and why? Is this similar to what happened to, to those who pointed out that the world was round and not flat? <laughs> I mean, is, is, is this is what happened to Galileo? Is, is, this, is this, you know, what happened to the, to the great sex researchers where, where their careers were ruined? To Socrates? Let's not forget. <laughs> For example, thank you. You know, yeah. Well, that's a great point. And the article is by Walter Hennegraaff, this world-class Dutch scholar who wrote a think piece about the a career of John Allegro. And it's tragic. It is nothing short of tragic because John Allegro put out this book, uh, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, which put forward a number of very bold speculations. And sadly, his career was ruined, not by people who had gone through his research and refuted his points, which I don't think has anyone has actually done. I don't know I don't know any scholars personally that have the language skills to actually go through and to undermine Allegro's argument. Instead, what you had was his book set off a media firestorm with people saying, you know, fun with fungi is really, you know, you had a media narrative that just totally tarred and feathered this scholar, misrepresented his research as just a wacky canard, when in fact it wasn't. But, and the result of course was that you know, it totally crushed him. And he never went back to do more research on this stuff and basically was bullied into silence. And, and this is not the first time it's happened. If you look at the career of Karl Ruck, it's a similar thing. Karl Ruck is a fantastic classicist. He literally wrote the book on learning classical Greek. His book is taught for students who want to learn classical Greek. However, he began to publish a number of, I think, very insightful books on the viticulture of ancient Rome, that is the culture of wine drinking in Rome. And whenever you read these texts from the Roman era, there's wine everywhere and people are enjoying it, but they don't seem to be intoxicated in the same way that we are. Why are they having visions of gods? Why are they having an ascent into the noumena? What kind of wine were they drinking? Karl Ruck went back and said, hey, listen, we've done some archaeological evidence and there's a lot of textual clues indicating that wine wasn't the wine we drink today. In fact, wine in the ancient world was added. There was a number of psychedelic additives to it. And so this casts a new light on the sacramental use of wine amongst the early Christian community. If it was, in fact, a psychedelic group, the sacramentalization of wine within it would make perfect sense. Because this is a way that you can remember Christ as you take a psychedelic, you take a drink of a psychedelic brew amongst your friends. So anyways, this is an old story, which is throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, scholars risked losing their job 
or at least losing any attempt to become tenure if they violated the intellectual prohibition against studying psychedelic history and psychedelic I would add to that, and correct me if you think I'm mistaken, that they were not only bringing psychedelic history into play, but they were also questioning some very basic assumptions about Christianity, and they were doing it in a Christian country. I mean, that's certainly the case, though, you know, I always like to remind my students, I work in an American studies department, uh, the founding fathers were deists. You know, these were not Christian men, in fact. And if you look, for example, about the Christianization of modern America, you know, there are a number of standout dates. The first is 1956. 1956, in God we trust, was added to the dollar bill. That's recent. Yes. That's new. And so it's within this regime, this post-war regime of Cold War paranoia and an evangelical Christianization of America that scholars like this were pushing against. They were pushing against the public evangelical version of Christianity with a historical, a historically based thesis that the story is always more complicated than we think. And this, these very same evangelical groups are looking to take over the government now, flying the flag mm -hmm. of Donald Trump, as you well know. And uh, that's right. It, it's a dangerous well, time. Richard, that's another whole- Yeah, absolutely, Richard. Th this brings up a point I'd like to ask you. I have recently, started to consider something that I find to be very dangerous, which is the possibility that we are living in a small island of open-minded thinking about psychedelics, and that could possibly not last forever. That I mean, do you get the sense that we're building towards a change in culture with the psychedelic renaissance? Or is it possible that this is a, a small moment of clear thinking in what would otherwise be, uh, then otherwise revert back to war on drugs? That's a great question, Christian. And as I said to a group of seminarians this past weekend, I had the good fortune to live in one of those moments in history, and it was called the 1960s. And it was a spirit of love in the air. There was a spirit of good feeling towards one's fellow in the air. There was the kind of spirit where when I went over the Bay Bridge in San Francisco, many of us would pay for the person behind us. There Beautiful. Was, there, it was exciting. It was a thrill to have the person in front of you pay for your bill. It was only a buck, but it was a feeling of camaraderie and connection. It was a time when people wore costumes rather than just the off-the-rack clothing that people that we are regimented with to all look the same in this country. It was a time when people danced in the streets and helped each other with food. And then... We elected a paranoid alcoholic president named Richard Nixon, who declared a war on drugs. A war on drugs would be like machine guns and tanks shooting at drugs. But it wasn't a war on drugs. It was a war on people. He declared war on the hippies. He declared war on the black people. And to a lesser extent, a war on the Jews. And everything changed. And this is underlining your point because the 60s then became not something that carried on in the way the Grateful Dead, although the spirit of it has to a certain extent, it became a moment in history. And now we are undergoing a, a psychedelic renaissance where research is coming out for the first time in 50 years after 50 years of suppression 
of university research? What kind of a country suppresses university research? That's what I expect from China and Russia. That's not what I expect from the great America. Suppression of research. We're coming out of it, but eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And if we are not vigilant, if we don't get out and vote, if we're not very careful, this whole renaissance could become, in your words, a small moment in history, and the clock could turn back again. Because there are groups in this country banning books in these here United States. You know that, you've read about it, we all know about it. They are banning books. And if we don't want to live as subjects rather than citizens, if we don't want to live in a country where books are banned, we better get moving and we better yes. activate and we better get I think out. You're the, exactly right. And we better get out the vote. This is a very dangerous time. I totally agree with you, Christian. In fact, I think an argument could strongly be made that we are still fighting the civil war mm-hmm. and that we are engaged in a civil war. And this is a yeah. very dangerous time. It's the most dangerous time. And I'm 83 years old. It's the most dangerous time of my lifetime for sure. And I lived through World War II. And this feels more dangerous. Yeah. And, and, you know, Richard, what you said about banning books just has me thinking it's not impossible to foresee of a time when your new book, Psychedelic Wisdom, is on that band's book list. When my book, Angel-Headed Hipsters, is on the band's book list. And so I suppose the imperative then is for us to do the work we can do now, is to not wait but in fact, devote our full attention to this stuff. And if it just so happens that uh, the tide turns and psychedelics are no longer touted as a beneficial element in human culture for healing, for therapy, for spirituality, for recreation, um, well, then I think that we, we should be able to account for the liberties that we enjoy right now by doing the hard work we do in order to explain and clarify what these substances are and the value they have to culture. One of aspect of the present Renaissance, Christian, that you're quite familiar with is what one might call taking homeopathic doses of psychedelics. They're referred to as microdoses. Is this something that has been brought to us that has been used in the past that you know of? And can can we learn something about our present usage of microdosing from some of these past experiences? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well... So much of my research on psychedelic culture is based on archival exploration. I go into, you know, the Ludlow Santo Domingo Library at Harvard, the largest archive of psychedelic material on earth, is an an essential reference point for anyone who wants to do research here. The same with the Institute of Social History in Amsterdam. But the real knowledge about the history of psychedelic culture is going to become, it's going to come from people like you, Richard. It's going to come from people who live through it. People like John St. Clair, Lenny St. Clair. People who were not just on the sidelines, but actively engaged in the revolution to change consciousness. And what I've learned from my friends who are in their 70s and 80s and 90s is that psychedelics were looked at as a means by which one could connect or reconnect to the source of all knowledge, to God. And what I learned was a lot of my elderly friends who were in the psychedelic the 1960s psychedelic movement never stopped taking them. And in fact, it really broke my heart to hear one of my ugly friends said, I remember the day Timothy Leary died. I took 50 micrograms of LSD and it brought back all of the joy. It brought back all of the passion. It brought back the sense of purpose that he bestowed to us. And I thought, that's so beautiful. So my friend was saying, I didn't grieve. I took a microdose 
and relive the excitement, the spiritual adventure that Timothy Leary guided us on. That set off a number of thoughts in my head, which is I should start, I should stop, start, I should start asking my older friends how they have used psychedelics over the years. And what as a result of that particular line of inquiry, it turns out that while my friends were getting older, they didn't feel comfortable doing the maximalist doses, 200, 300 plus, they felt much more comfortable taking just little thumbnail doses and not to have a major trip, but just to relive what they already knew, to return to being gratefully dead, <laughs> if I can return to this particular idea we had earlier. So it seems like microdosing was a part of the psychedelic culture from the 60s to the present. My experience with microdosing, and I've had an abundant experience with it, is that it does not bring back the glory of the three to 500 microgram experiences and everything I learned. They're, it's pleasant. It feels like a bit of an energizer, but the real knowledge comes from the three to 500 microgram doses and not from the present 100 microgram dose either. Mm -hmm. Because what is common to the larger doses which I had in my very first psychedelic experience in 1966 or 67. What is common, and I say common because as you've referenced my book, Psychedelic Wisdom, I've got 1,500 years of stories of tribal <laughs> elders, sub rosa, taking psychedelics over the last 30 to 40 years. And what is common in the full-scale psychedelic experience is the deep connection to all humanity, the deep connection to each of us. And it is that, that connection that guides us that is so powerful. Now, many other realizations take place as well. And you mentioned one about DNA and wisdom. And I did in that first experience and in others after it, have an experiential learning, a teaching to me that all wisdom from the beginning to now is in each of us. It's encoded into our DNA. And what we need do is go inside as well as outside. As much as the importance of your library research, and I love the fact that you went to the Fitzhugh Ludlow Library, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> as much as that kind of research is important, so is the inner research. Because from my perspective, Christian, what we are so missing out on in Western culture is teaching people to look within when they feel something out of the ordinary. And I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. We are trained that if we feel uncomfortable to look outside to see what it is that's causing the discomfort. And some of that is instinctual because of, you know, the famous experiment, if you see a bear in the woods... You know, do, do you stop and fight or do you run? And there's a, we call it the fight or flight uh, reaction, right? And of course, if you have any brains about you and, 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 and any, any equilibrium, you get the hell out of there or get, a, you know, get up the tree as fast as you can, right? But from that paradigm of fight or flight, when we get scared, when we get anxious, when our blood pressure goes up and our heart rate increases, we tend to look outside, What's causing it? What's out there? Is there a bear out there? And really what we need to teach ourselves and our young people is that when that happens, you look inside. How do I bring my blood pressure down internally? How do I re resolve my heart rate internally? Because looking outside for what's causing a problem inside 
is on the way to paranoia. Absolutely. Because paranoia and be something else, you know. Paranoia be is thing. right. Paranoia is there's something out there that's going to get me. Mm-hmm. But no, but narapoya, what I call narapoya, is oh, there's something going on inside me. I'll look inside with me, and then I'll resolve it because I have the power to resolve it. I can I can change my heart rate. I can change my blood pressure. Right I on, can, Richard. That's what I'm talking about, man. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I like that. That's beautiful. And you know, it, it brings to mind um, what Plato said, that we don't learn anything. We have animesis. We have to remember what has always been there. I've always liked that idea that we don't learn anything. We just remember what's always been there. I love that. We have to remember what's already there. That That is Absolutely. outstanding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, Aldous Huxley had a similar idea, which towards the end of his life, after he had undergone a lot of psychedelic experiences, Huxley began to put together a new form of education based on this idea that knowledge cannot take root unless the soil is enriched. Don't try teaching students unless they are ready to learn. And how do you prepare students to learn? How do you prepare students to be curious, to have a sense of wonder? He called it the nonverbal humanities. And he believed it was based on meditation. He believed it was based on introspection. And he believed it was based on the use of psilocybin mushrooms. This is outlined in his book, The Island. He believed that you have to prepare the soil. And I don't think this is just for young people. I think this is for everybody. For the Fritz U. Ludlow Library to make any sense, I had to prepare myself to be able to know what to look for. I don't think anyone off the street could just walk in and, and, and really get a clear sense. And I think that's not just for archives, but for classrooms too. And I think that as educators, it is incumbent upon us to realize that it is not a matter of material we're teaching, but a matter of being with other people who are able to learn and teach themselves. Indeed. Are there any particular historical moments, in addition to the ones you've told us about, that we should be considering as relating to the current Renaissance? Wow, great question. Well, of course, the first is the original psychedelic revolution in the Paleolithic or Neolithic era. I think that has a lot to teach us, but much is that, more Excuse post- me, is that the one where you're talking about that the, the fact that Homo sapiens of the, of the six different kinds of, of, of humans is the one that became the kind of human Homo sapiens did rather than the Neanderthal, that that was affected by psychedelic experiences. You mentioned possibly Amanita muscaria. Yeah, well, the idea is typically referred to as the stoned ape theory, and that's not exactly accurate because it's that would be using Lamarckian evolution, which is to say the traits of the father and mother, <laughs> which they acquired in their life or passed out. They're not. You know, that's none of us are Lamarckians. We are uh, Darwinians which means that Amanita Mascara was a part of an ecological niche that, by virtue of being present, changed the way in which that niche functioned. And the changing of a function, the, the, the gestalt of that niche changed as a result of Amanita Mascara, and it's as a result of these ecological niches that different evolutionary paths were taken. But, but I should say that I am much more interested in people today remembering the original wave of psychedelic therapy in the 1950s. Let's not forget Psychiatrists and psychologists have already had a turning point in their history in the 1950s. And here I'd reference my friend Erica Dyke's book, 
psychedelic psychiatry. It looks at the way in which the 1950s psychedelic psychiatry boom in Saskatchewan, Canada, and Los Angeles, California, made significant, made significant strides with the treatment of alcoholism, made significant strides with the treatment of uh, impotence and so-called virginity, made incredible strides with the treatment of schizophrenia. Psychedelics were poised to be a new way of life for America in the 1950s. And the idea that Timothy Leary was somehow responsible for the end of that is not true. There were so many other factors at play that really derailed that particular moment in history. Um, and here I should say that the U.S. government has always been interested in psychedelics. In fact, they were far more interested in psychedelics in the late 40s and early 50s than the psychiatric community. Yes. But they, they were interested in them for nefarious reasons. And I should say that um, to this day, I don't think that is that that is interest has evaporated. So whatever strides are being made by the psychiatric community today, I think they should always keep in mind that the government is not far behind, curious, interested in appropriating those beautiful insights to their own. Head. I'm going to take us in a slightly different direction, Christian, because you mentioned Darwin. And there are those who would argue that Darwinian theory suggests that we should take care of the strongest and feed the strongest and let the weak perish. And those very same people are practicing what we might call Darwinian capitalism. Mm -hmm. So that whereas, in contradistinction to those of us humanists, I include myself, who would feed the world because, quote, we can and they are part of us, they would argue we should let them perish because they're not the strongest. Do you see a way that psychedelics could counter that kind of thinking of extreme Darwinianism to the point of letting billions die without water or letting in Darwinian capitalism, allowing billions to perish without food? I mean, what a maladapted and ugly view of power, because I think as psychedelic people for the last hundred years have said, that's not what power is. Power is love. Real power is togetherness and it lifts everybody up. So if we look at psychedelic activists over the last hundred years, their principal interest was sharing the sublime affection of being on earth together. And so I hope, of course, that the reintroduction of psychedelics into the mainstream will spread this realization that love is the answer. Always has been. Ain't gone nowhere. Still here. Love has always been the answer. Um, and hopefully it will diffuse this disgusting misunderstanding of what power is, which in fact... Um, this survival of the fittest mentality, which is uh, only brought pain and suffering to humanity. Also, if I'm not mistaken, Darwin didn't coin the term survival of the fittest. I think it came later, but was attributed to him. Yes. But anyways, hopefully love will return as the answer because it's always been the answer. And I think always will be, or at least I hope so. I'm going I'm to bring this edition of our interview with Dr. Christian to a close. I pointedly say this edition because I very much want to bring him back in the future. I'm going to end the edition with a quote from him that you just heard a few moments ago. Let us focus on the sublime affection that love brings to us all. Thank you, Christian, for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I, I so much have enjoyed and appreciate the words of wisdom that you bring to us. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. It's been an absolute pleasure to be with you today. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. 
Until we meet again, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.